everyone else to open up to Paul's letter to Titus. It is indeed a joy to gather with the saints and to read God's word and to be changed by God's spirit in the face of his word. This morning, we will be our final message in Paul's letter to Titus. We close out the book, and our study comes to an end after about 12 weeks. Next week, we will return to the fourth book of the Psalms, Psalm 90, a psalm of Moses, the man of God. But this week, we are not yet done with Titus, and I think there's still a little bit juice more to squeeze out of this rich book. And so even though we're just looking at a closing Final instruction and greetings, and and many of the commentaries I read sort of lumped this last few verses in with the last section. I do think there is much for us here, and then we'll end our time with a review of what we've seen in Titus. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we will dive in. Lord God, um, we need your grace every day. None of us is sufficient. None of us in his own strength can accomplish anything. Our very next breath and the beat of our heart is is a gift from you. And Lord, more than that, we need grace to see your word. We need grace to understand your word. And Lord, we need grace to apply and live your word. So Lord, give us understanding. Give us that grace. Help us to look in the mirror intently and not forget who we are, but to, to walk away and be changed, Lord. As we behold glory, change us into your image. Mold us into the image of your son, purify your bride, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a matter of four verses, the final instructions and final greetings. Let's just read it. Titus chapter 3, 12 to 15. <clears throat> When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And so we're going to look at this in in two sections, and then a third section of review. We're going to see the final instructions, verses 12 to 14, and the final greetings, and then we'll have our final review. So let's dive in. Final instructions, A. We see here in in the first verse, 12, ministerial help and regrouping with Paul. Ministerial help and regrouping with Paul. What we see is that the Apostle Paul has planned further ministry for Titus. On the one hand, he's written this entire epistle to instruct him what he's to do here and now. And now, for the first time in the book, Paul's vision goes beyond Titus's immediate ministry to the churches at Crete to where he's off to go next. And so Paul is determined to send either Artemis, we, we don't know who Artemis is, he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, or Tychicus, we do know a bit more about him in Acts 20 verse 4, we learn that he accompanied Paul and Luke um, as part of his team, and he's an Asian Christian. He's from the area of Asia. We don't know a whole lot more than that. He, uh, he ultimately is going to end up in Ephesus. By the time we get to Second Timothy, that's where Tychicus is going to be. So it's likely that Artemis is the one who Paul sends. 
we don't know for certain. But Paul's sending one or the other, and when they arrive, he wants Timothy to speedily try to make it to Nicopolis so that he can greet, meet him there and spend the winter there. And in that part of the world, you really, it's very difficult to travel in the wintertime by sea. And as we learn from Romans, Paul has a desire to do ministry where he hasn't done ministry before, to not build on another man's foundation. And Nicopolis is on the west coast of Greece. Um, it's the capital of Epirus, and it's next to the Adriatic Sea. And so it's a good strategic point if Paul's planning on moving westward to spend the winter. He wants Timothy there. So that's basically what's going on. But what I find fascinating from this is the Apostle Paul's ability, both on the one hand, to myopically look at the local church, specifics. I mean, you go to a, a letter like Philippians, which the youth will be studying, and our tough men class has been going through, and he's, he's worried about two women having an argument. Paul is, on the one hand, intimately concerned with the fine details of the local church, the people in the local church, and yet that doesn't stop Paul from having this big sort of world missions view. I find this really challenging. I find it's hard to do both, and yet Paul is somehow doing both. Paul is intimately concerned with the inner workings of each local church. He's intimately concerned with how they're doing, and yet he's also got this grand planning vision where he's sending people here, and people are arriving over there, and he wants to, and in the world without cars and airplanes, this is a lot of travel. And, and Paul's coordinating all of this in, in the development of the gospel. And, and it's hard even in Paul's mind to separate the missions work from the church building work because someone who's a missionary over here comes over to strengthen the church over there. And so Timothy is, Titus, I'm sorry, is part of Paul's church planning endeavor, but then he leaves him behind as sort of a, to deal with the formative church, more of a building up and establishing the church. And in Paul's world and ministry, these are sort of indistinguishable, the church planting and the church building. And, and it gives us at least one piece of information that we should try to have that heart too. It's, it's easy to have our focus inward, and that's good. We have biblical warrant for being intimately concerned about individuals, people, situations. And yet, we need to struggle and, and, and strive to also get this sort of world vision as well. The Apostle Paul is somehow able to write an entire letter about the specific things Titus is to do and Timothy is to do and, and to all these churches and all these people and yet at the same time, he's got a big vision of the church growing and the gospel spreading. This is, this is why we're, we're, we have a missions committee and why we support missionaries and, and why we need to do it more and more and more. We need to strike that balance. You can have a church that's so busy looking inward that it's not looking outward, or a church that's so busy looking outward that it's not looking inward. And we want to strike the balance that Paul has. On the one hand, intimate concern and much attention to the specifics of church and, and yet never sacrificing the, the global bigger picture. And so Paul gives him ministerial help, sending Artemis or Tychicus, and, and then ultimately him regrouping with Paul at Nicopolis. And we get from this that also that Paul wasn't at Nicopolis when he wrote this. He's planning on spending the winter there, which means he was likely in Macedonia when he wrote Titus. The second thing we see is supporting and equipping Zenos and Apollos in ministry. Supporting and equipping Zenos and Apollos in ministry. Now again, Zenos, we don't know much about him. He's a lawyer. Could reference either a Jewish lawyer, but probably far more likely and more significant, a Roman jurist. Someone who's aware of Roman law. 
Um, we don't know anything about him. Apparently, he's a trustworthy brother. And we do know an awful lot about Apollos. It's likely the letter itself, Titus, was delivered by them to Titus, by, by um, Zenos and Apollos. Apollos is that uh, Jewish Christian who's powerful in the scriptures. They meet in Acts 18, and yet he's trained in rhetoric. He's mighty in the scriptures. And Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside and, and sort of fill the rest of the gospel in for him. And, and we know that he did some uh, pastoral work at Corinth. If you remember the early chapters of Corinthians, there's that factions group, and it ultimately boils down to the people who like Paul and the people who like Apollos, because Apollos is a great preacher. So Apollos is a powerful speaker, teacher of the word, and we're not sure where he's going to or what he's doing. It's probably more of church support than church planting. It could be both. As I said, in, in Paul's ministry focus, the two aren't terribly distinguishable. And he wants Titus and the churches at Crete to support them. He wants them to literally, let's, let's read that here, um, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And that word for lack nothing is the exact same word back in chapter 1, verse 5. The reason he left Titus at Crete was to put in order the things that are lacking. And here, another thing that Paul's to, 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 Paul, sorry, that Titus is to make sure is not lacking is the support for these ministers. And again, this is pushing out the church. That means the churches could take some of their money for this fledgling church, some of their, some of their resources, and direct it towards Zenos and Apollos and their ministry. And, and we again get our cues that churches aren't just to be concerned with ourselves, aren't just to be concerned with ministering to ourselves, but to furthering ministry elsewhere. And this zeal, this, this ability to look outside of the church. And so often we can be so focused on ourselves individually or ourselves as a family or ourselves as just a church that we can lose sight of the world out there. We can lose sight of ministry out there. And here we have an example. Paul wants Titus and the churches at Crete equipping these ministers. And not just equipping them a little bit, but fully equipped, lacking nothing. Now, in those days, there were no missions agencies, and there wasn't health insurance. So if you were an itinerant preacher, if you were a church planner, you had whatever supplies they gave. Paul, tent made, if you had a skill, you could do that. But these, these, these ministers are pretty much um, completely dependent on the gifts and the generosity of the churches. Paul himself was. When he's in Philippians, he writes to the Philippian church, telling them how blessed he was that they fully supplied his need. And here he's telling the churches at Crete to do the same to Zenos and Apollos in their ministry, that they lack nothing. And thirdly, we see that he wants Titus teaching the church to be devoted to good works. Probably in thinking about Apollos and Zenos and their need is what brings this up. It's also one of the major themes in the book, this focus on good works. But verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need, not being unfruitful. And, and just tracking that thread of good works through the book, because it's a big one. Back to chapter 1, Paul links his apostleship with, with this. Verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. I'm an apostle, he says, to call God's elect to faith 
in accordance with the knowledge of the truth. I don't just want them to believe in whatever's true for them. I don't just want them believing in whatever they believe in. I want them to believe in things that are true, and I want the true things that they believe in to correspond to, to lead to godliness. That's why I'm an apostle, Paul says. And then, his, one of his major complaints with the false teachers in 116, they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. What's one of the major problems with these false teachers? They aren't able. They don't do good works. It's not the only problem with them. And then, 2.7, Titus himself, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Verse 8 of chapter 3, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In a three-chapter book, that's a lot of references. It's a pretty big theme. And so as Paul is thinking of these ministers who need support, one more plug, one more plug for the scene. Remind the, the, the believers at Crete, remind them to devote themselves, that they learn to devote themselves to good works. And the way he phrases this is suggestive. If you have to learn something, what does that tell us? It doesn't necessarily come natural. Despite how much we want to feel that we're good people naturally, we're not. Good works does not come naturally to us. I, I don't know about you, but I've never just sort of relaxed, let go, and just gotten more holy. It generally works the other way, right? I, I've never met a great saint of the faith whose testimony, how? How is it that you became so godly? How is it that you grew to love the Lord so much? You know, I just didn't worry about it, just did what I wanted, went with the flow, and before you knew it, hey, look, here I am. I've never met anyone. I've never met anyone that that's their testimony. And we get insight from this, even back in chapter 2, 11. God's grace, he says, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. You need training to do good works. You need to learn to devote yourselves to good works. And so this is, this is part of the school of grace again. This is part of the school of the gospel. This is something God wants his people learning. To learn to devote themselves to good works, to learn to be focused on good works. That, that's the challenge. I was talking with a brother the other day about, about prayer and Bible reading, and I was confessing in myself that if I don't start the day with some time in the prayer, if I don't start the day with some time in the Word, it's not that I'm likely going to commit grievous sins. It's far more likely that I'll make it to lunchtime forgetting that I'm a blood-bought slave of Jesus Christ. It's far more likely that I'll live my life as if it's my own, it's far more likely that I will just, you know, do what I want, and what I want isn't going to be terribly evil, overtly. See, I've, I've got to remind myself, I've got to learn to be devoted. I've got to be looking for good works. They've got to be on my radar so that I'm looking for opportunities to do good. I'm looking for opportunities to speak truth. I'm looking for opportunities to help and assist and bless. And if it's not on your radar, if you're not looking for it, you're not going to see it that often which is going to lead us then to not, we don't want to be unfruitful. I know it's kind of out of order, but if you're not looking for this, if you're not learning to look for opportunities to do good, if you're not looking for opportunities to be a, a faithful slave of Christ, you're not going to find them, and you're going to be unfruitful. And you're not necessarily going to do terrible things. 
you're just not going to be bearing the fruit that God wants you bearing. The good works that Paul is so insistent in this book accompany and adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so this is something we need to learn. And we've seen earlier that one of the ways you learn this is by reminding each other, by way of reminder. And so we need to learn to be focused on this, and that will then make us able to help cases of urgent need. Helping cases of urgent need. Now, this is, this is interesting because there's a tension. The New Testament, on the one hand, is emphatic that there's a freedom in walking in the Spirit. If you're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a recipient of the New Covenant, you are not under the law, but you are under grace. And so we are under the law of love. And, and I've talked about this before, how that works. There's a freedom in love. Just imagine, you know, yesterday we had an elder retreat. And imagine we had a break, and in the break, one of us, we were outside walking, we found, you know, $50 in the parking lot. And, uh, or $50 just in the grass somewhere. And the elders began to have a discussion. What should we do with this $50? Imagine I found it. And so Jeb says, you know, you should, you should give that to um, the Deacon's Mercy Fund. And Greg says, I, I think you should probably um, take your wife out to dinner. And um, they go around, and Al says, you know, I think you should give that to one of our missionaries. And they go around the room, they got all these great ideas. And the question is, who's right? There is no right answer. What I'm required to do is act in faith and in love. And as long as I can do that, I don't need to justify which choice I make. So let's play it out a little further. Say I choose to um, help one of our missionaries. And one of the other elders comes up and says, why did you do that? Why didn't you take my idea? My idea was better. I don't need to justify it. I just need to say, look, I did what I did in faith and I did what I did in love. And that's how the freedom of love works in the new covenant. There is one exception, and here it is. Cases of urgent need. That's the general principle. That's why God might call Zach to a ministry he doesn't call me to. As long as Zach is doing works of love in faith, he, there is no law. As long as I'm doing acts of love in faith, there is no law. And that's how different Christians can give themselves to different ministries and, and be doing different good works. And mine aren't yours. And the ones that are important to me might not be the ones that are important to you. But all that matters is that we're acting in love and in faith. With the exception of cases of urgent need. Now turn over to James, chapter 2. Just a few pages. Two fourteen and 15. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? See, if there's, if there's a situation where somebody in our body is, is literally without food and without shelter, you don't get the option at that point to say, well, I'm praying for you, if you can help. At that point, you don't have the option of saying, well, I just feel the Lord calling me to a different ministry. Now, when, when someone's right there in front of you in need, there's a case of urgency, and that's, that's where it's not optional. And this kind of works in circles. That's why Paul can say, if, if someone doesn't take care of the members of their own household, they're worse than the believer. You know, no one gets to say, you know, I just, 
I just don't feel the Lord calling me to honoring my parents' ministry. I just feel called to, you know, um, help the homeless. That's a good thing. But if, if one's family, one's immediate family is in need, it's not an option. And so the circle seems to be one's family, one's local church, then that's sort of the household of faith in general, and then the world with decreasing levels of, of insistence. So we should care about what's going on in the world. We should be compassionate about that. But, but what's right in front of us, those cases of urgent need right in front of us, are the ones that are non-optional. And so there's all sorts of ministries and ways that we can give and help things out in the world, but those aren't as mandatory. That we're doing it is mandatory. The specific ministry you want to give to, the specific relief thing that you're passionate about, that, that's, there's freedom there. Where there's not freedom is cases of urgent need, which really breaks down to things like the lack of food, the lack of shelter, the immediate medical needs of people in our body, people known to us, people here. And, that, and that's one of the things that I rejoice in seeing is seeing how our body does this. Um, I've seen our body gather around people in, in trouble and in times of need, and it's a great joy to see that. But the point is, tracking this back to the command, if we're not training ourselves to be watchful for the good we can do, we're going to miss these types of things. Now, not everyone who has a case of urgent need is waving a flag. Some people are a little more subtle. And so you've got to look for it. You got, it's got to be on your alert. You might miss somebody. And I know there are some people here who are really good at seeing that, really good at catching somebody who, who's in trouble and needs help. And this is something we learn. This is a skill we learn and grow in. And it's something Paul's very passionate about, good works, and specifically those urgent cases of need. So anyway, that's the final instructions. And then, as Paul traditionally does, he, he gives some closing greetings. Let's take a look at that. Verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you and greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. What's really interesting and remarkable is a friend of mine once read through the New Testament keeping a ledger of all of the commands, all of the imperative verbs in the New Testament to try to see, break him into categories, what the number one command was. And he came back to me, and I, I, I saw his work at the time, but I'm, I have to remember this now. His, his testimony was, and I think he's right, that overwhelmingly the, the number one command was greet, greetings. You think of it. All of Romans 16 is one long, greet this person, greet that person, greet this person. Um, Colossians has extended greetings sections. And regardless of whether it's number one or not, I think he is right. There's a lot of ink spent on this topic. And yet, in my own reading of the Bible, it's really easy to sort of gloss over this stuff. Paul spends a lot of time and a lot of intentionality. I mean, even in this subtle little greeting, you'll notice it's, it's kind of complicated. Point A here. The greeting is from us to you, right? That's the first part. All who are with us greet you. And then it's also from us through you to them, right? It's from us to you, and it's from us through you to them. All who are with me send greetings to you and greet those who love us in the faith. And in both instances, there's greetings going by third parties. There's people with Paul who Paul represents greeting Titus. And then Paul wants Titus to represent them greeting these other people who love him. Greetings are a pretty big deal for Paul. And you think about it, why that might be. 
And it's because the encouragement that we give, the joy that we share in the Lord, it's a big deal. I think it's good and right and proper that we spend 20 minutes after the service greeting each other and fellowshipping. I think it's wonderful we got greeters at the front doors. I love the fact that there are people who come early to fellowship and see each other. That song we were singing, we were singing, the girls were singing just earlier, how they love the fellowship of being with each other in the Lord. That, that's what's here. Paul loves these people. Paul wants to encourage these people, and he wants these people to know that he loves them, he appreciates them, he values them, so greet them for me. We're greeting you, Titus. We want you to know that, and we want you to greet them for us. And if you read through, keep your eye open, you read through your New Testament, you, you will see just how much ink Paul spends on greetings. And, and you may think that sending an email, sending a card, sending a word of encouragement is no big thing. It's a huge thing. And it's something Paul consistently gives priority to. And so I just want to encourage you here today to continue doing that, excel even more. This is an important work of love. It's an important good work, and it's something we are rightly to be interested in. Conversely, and I've met some people who sort of, you know, come to church, they just want to hear the message and sort of get out. God has a bigger plan for you than that. He, he has a plan for your heart to broaden out, to, to meet people, to greet people, to, to be connected with people. And being part of a local church is, is more than listening to a sermon and singing a song. It, it, it is that fellowship. It is that joy in the spirit. And I'd encourage if that's where you're at today, to, to broaden your horizon of what God would have for you. Paul, Paul loves people. Paul loves greeting people, encouraging people. And if you've ever been encouraged, you know how good it can feel. You know what a blessing it can be. So I want us to follow suit as well. Which brings us then to the final phrase of the book. Grace be with you all. And, and the book ends where it started. Back at the end of his greeting, at the beginning, he ends with grace. If you go back to uh, verse 4 of chapter 1. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And here he ends it with grace be with you all. Grace is a pretty big deal in this book. Go back to chapter 2, verse 11. One of the two doctrinal sections is all about grace. 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And if you've been here in the last few weeks, you, I hope I've made the point abundantly clear. As much as Paul wants Titus to encourage, to train, to exhort, to command the Christians at Crete to live godly lives, he wants them to do it for the right reasons. In both sections where moral instruction is given, from 2, 1 to 10, and then 3, 1 and 2, it's immediately followed by theological, gospel, grace foundations for why that is to be done. So you can just try to go out and, and do good things in your own strength. You can just sort of grit your teeth and, and work hard, and you can become a moralist, you can become a legalist, you can become a Pharisee, you can become discouraged. And what Paul envisions in our whole series through chapter 2 is sound doctrine and sound living is, is bearing the right fruit from the right root. And so the root is a root of gospel grace. The root is a root of God's free giving us what we don't deserve. 
And, and so he starts and finishes this letter with grace. And it's quite fitting. This is Paul's final word to Titus here. And now, finally, I just want to move to a review of the book. Um, we've been in here for about 12 or 13 weeks. And we've, we've just come to the end. Paul's travel plans. And I just want to highlight three themes in the epistle. Because my goal is, is not just that, that you'd be fed each week, but that we're all growing in our knowledge of the Scripture. So if you come back to Titus in a year or two or three, you'll know the book better. And so because of that, let's just look at three themes in Titus. Sound leaders, sound doctrine, sound living. And so in chapter one, sound leaders, and we, we covered this. Paul leaves one of his team members behind, a team member he wants to regroup with. We've just seen that. It's not as though Titus is dispensable. He is not. And yet, what was lacking at the churches in Crete was of such importance, Paul leaves behind one of his team for a time. And we see in verse 5 why that is. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And we've said this before. Literally, it's to set in order what's lacking, to put elders in every town. There were not godly leadership in the churches and so we see the priority of godly leadership. I just got to spend the entire day yesterday with the elders of this church talking through things. And, and as, as I left, I was talking to Daniel, and I just said, I am so thankful and so grateful to be working alongside of these men. Because there are, not every church has got godly leadership. Not every church has got strong leadership. It is such a blessing and a joy to have that here. And if you don't appreciate that, I would encourage you to appreciate that and let them know that they're appreciated. I know this is Pastor Appreciation Month, but if you, if you remember, elders are pastors too, so let them know that they're appreciated because we are very blessed here. And, and it's such an important issue that Paul will leave Titus behind. A church without solid, qualified, godly elders and leaders is a church that is in want, a church that is lacking, a church that is incomplete. We read that in verse 6, the qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer. As God's steward must, not, must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so they may be able to give sound instruction, sound instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict. And then the rest of the chapter is devoted to the need, the, the reason why you need these godly, biblically sound men standing in the front is because there's error out there trying to creep into the church. And there's, you don't have to go very far to, to, to see it trying to get into the church at large. And so... There's a teaching ministry, there's a shepherding, guarding ministry going on here, and it's vitally important. And he spends all of chapter one after the greeting dealing with that. That's sound leadership, the importance of sound leadership. Secondly, the importance of sound doctrine. And chapter two starts with that. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And the word for sound can mean healthy, whole doctrine. And the book only has two sections, two doctrinal sections. Really, chapter 2, 11 through 14 is a compact treatise on the grace of the gospel, and the death of Jesus for our sin. And then chapter 3 has that hymn, verses 4 to 7. 
And we'll just take a minute and look at those. Because as I said a few minutes ago, all of the moral instruction, all of the sound living that's coming has got to be rooted in, has got to grow out of sound doctrine taking hold of our our hearts and our minds. So let's just take a look at that sound doctrine. What does Paul mean when he speaks of sound doctrine? He means the gospel. He means a clear understanding of, and a rich and deep understanding of the gospel. The, the gospel is something so simple and yet so profound. It's as easy as calling on someone to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And yet, as, as we've gone through this, we've seen the depth and the breadth and the complexity of what's going on. Let's just dive into 211. God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, in that first section of doctrine, if you remember from a few weeks ago, the emphasis was two things. We're saved by grace, and we are trained by grace. That Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, to remove the penalty of our sin. And he died on the cross to make it possible for us to grow in the knowledge of him, to grow in our sanctification, to grow in being more like Jesus, to grow in our war against sin. He, he died for both of those things. And if, if you receive Jesus, if you put your faith in him, if you turn to him and trust him, you will be forgiven because of what he did on the cross. And you will then begin changing and growing because of what he did on the cross. And that's the reason why Paul lays that foundation. If you don't see your good works, if you don't see your growth as an outworking of that gospel, as, as the fruit of that gospel root, if you're trying to do it for any other reason, you will fail or you'll think you'll succeed and become a Pharisee. And so the root has got to precede the fruit. We don't get saved by doing good things. Rather, as grace takes hold of our hearts, as the gospel transforms us, as we are trusting in Christ by faith, that new life, that new energy, that new grace changes the way we live. And the proof or the adornment, if you will, of that's how Paul speaks of it in verse 10, of the gospel is the change in our lives. And then down in, in chapter 3, we saw the uh, Trinitarian hymn, verses 4 to 7, where every member of the Trinity is seen to be at work in saving us, understanding what's going on in the gospel. Chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness. Let's just stop there. If you're trusting on doing something to merit God's favor, if you're trusting in some good work that you do, church attendance, whatever, that's not how we're saved. It doesn't get any clearer than that. He saved us not by works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. How did God save you? He cleansed you with his spirit. He baptized you into Jesus Christ. He, he sent his spirit to you, applying the work of Christ on the cross. He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, and we talked about how that word justified means pronounced innocent. Again, you, you can be pronounced innocent right now. 
Um, you're, you're living out of your faith, your sanctification, your growing grace. That's going to take some time. But he speaks to everyone here at Crete as justified. Past tense. You've been declared innocent. You've been declared sinless. You've been declared right with God because of what Jesus did. So that being justified by grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then that ultimately leaves us not just forgiven, but adopted into God's family and heirs of everything. That, that's the sound doctrine, and we spent weeks on that. And all of that is what's meant to be the foundation for the final point, sound living. See, if, if you skip over that, just be, Christianity just becomes a list of rules. Do this, don't do that. But now understanding the, what God has done for us. Now every member of the Trinity is at work in our lives and how God is so passionate about us being changed and bearing good fruit. Now we can go up to chapter 2, verse 2, and Paul's instruction to older men. Because Paul goes case by case in, in chapter 2, 1 through 10. Older men, be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's what older men should be known for. They should be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, should be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. See, all of this is, is, is fueled by, informed by, powered by the gospel truths that we just looked at. He doesn't just stop there. Younger men, likewise, verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, showing yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that your opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And he goes on to slaves. They'll be submissive to their masters in every respect. They'll be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And those are the sort of specific family relationship commands. And then in chapter 3, we got the general commands, the Christian related to the world. And we have the difficult word to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, and to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And then the rest is argument backing that up. And so in closing, I just want to sort of put those three themes together. Because where you've got a church with sound leadership, you're going to have the men in place to teach the sound doctrine, Right? You're going to have the ministries in place to do that. And where you've got sound doctrine being taught, it's the seedbed, it's this fertile soil that sound living grows out of. And so they, they fit together. Paul's themes are not random. You need the godly leaders to refute the error, to teach the truth, and you need the people taught the truth so that they can live the truth. And it's a great joy to serve this church where I see all those things happening and taking place. And so I just would encourage you to rejoice in that, to understand the importance of that. This, this epistle is written for those three things primarily and to embrace it and to be changed by it. And this ends our study in Titus. Like I said, next week we will return to Psalm 90. If call the worship team up for your final song. We will sing, It is well with my soul. Amen and amen.
Why don't you go ahead and stand up?